Please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews, chapter 4. We continue now our exposition of the book of Hebrews and find ourselves in verse 12. Uh, We will consider for the sermon today verses 12 through 13, but I will read from 12 to the very end of the chapter that we may see the intended work of the, the Word of God, but also see where the Word intends to take us. Uh, so Hebrews 4, verses 12 and following. These are the very words of God. May you give your attention to it. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. May God bless this reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to your word and now we come to hear it preached. And we pray, Father, that the minister would preach diligently, that he would preach truth, the truth of the word, that you would give him your Holy Spirit to be able to do this work, that uh, by the Spirit's power, the word of God would be not just mere words on the page of our Bibles, but living and active, probing us, showing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts that we would bring glory to God. Oh, Father, only your Spirit can do this work now. And so we pray as well that the uh, hearts that would uh, hear the word that they would also have the operation of the Holy Spirit active on them, and that all people here from minister to youngest covenant child would truly be under the effects of the word of God. Father, you say elsewhere that your word is as a fire and as a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Oh, we thank you for that, Father, for this uh, mighty word is able to bring glory to God when it does such a work in our hearts. So do such a work now by the preaching of the word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the apostle, as you remember, has been warning us about an evil heart of unbelief, that many will not enter his rest because of an evil heart of unbelief, because they do not believe and their heart is hardened to the word, they will not come into the eternal rest of Christ. What the apostle is doing now is saying you cannot hide. You cannot hide from God. God sees the evil hearts of unbelief that we have, if we have it, that our evil is visible and it is naked before God, that no creature is hidden from his sight, even the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts, the things that we guard from our neighbor. The things that we guard even from the person sitting next to us. Those things are, we are naked and open before God. We are completely exposed before the Lord. That you can fool ministers, you can fool your spouse, you can fool your parents, you can fool your children, you can fool your best friend, but you cannot fool God. 
All our secrets are laid bare before God. And he is showing us that not only does does God see, that you can see how God sees you through the word of God. That all the thoughts and intentions of your heart are laid bare before the living, powerful, mighty word of God. And so he says it is necessary for us to come under this penetrating power of the word of God, that we would see ourselves as God sees us, that we might be cut to the heart by the word of God and our evil heart of unbelief would be exposed to ourselves, but not just be cut to the heart by it, but that we would also flee to Jesus Christ when the word cuts us. That as we are cut in the heart, as in the book of Acts, we would say, what must we do? And we would see where this text leads us, which is that we must go to our great high priest, which is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, who cannot be touched, who is, who is there, a high priest, which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so when the word does its work on us, we are to flee to Jesus Christ. Now we'll look at that portion next time, but it's necessary to see the entirety of the argument here. And we are to not just dread, we are not to dread, in other words, this operation of the word of God in our souls. We are to embrace it. We are to embrace this cutting power of the word of God, that we would use it even after our conversion as a surgeon uses a scalpel to cut out cancer in us. And the word of God does this. It shows us the cancer in our souls and we are to cut out indwelling sin by it. And so with that, really that introduction to set our theme in order, our theme is this, that God's word exposes our inmost secrets, that we would flee to Christ for forgiveness and be conformed to his will, which is found in the word. That God's word uh, exposes our inmost secrets, that we would flee to Christ for forgiveness and be conformed to his will, which is found in this word. And we'll consider that under two heads this afternoon. First is uh, that we are pierced or must be pierced by the word. And second, we are judged by the word. First, pierced by the word. In verse 12 we hear, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now we actually have to, and it didn't strike me until I started looking at more uh, commentators. There's actually an interpretive question here. What is being referred to as the word of God? What is the word here? And there is really a divergence of thought here. Uh, Boys and girls, because you know that Jesus Christ is the word of God, the second person of the Trinity. You remember, and you probably have it memorized in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so the question here is, is the Son of God being referred to in this text, or is it the inscripturated word of God, the written word of God we have in our Bibles? Interesting to see the number of men who have taken that this is Jesus, uh, Augustine, Owen, Um, Gill and many others have seen that this might be Jesus. Actually, they taught that it was Jesus that is being referred to here. Um, That's really a minority position, even though some very good men have held to it. But I do think the more natural sense of the text is this is the written scripture that is being spoken of. And that's how most interpret it, including Calvin and others. Um, And I think when I was looking at this text, and it struck me for the first time as I looked at Owen, um, I thought, 
what really, I think, cements the view, this is the inscripturated word, is that this is really a continuation of a discourse began in verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So this is a continuation, really, of a discourse that began with the inscripturated word. And so this is, I believe, the word of God, the scriptures being called back to here. And you remember that one of the things that we note about the book of Hebrews, and even in this last uh, chapter or so, is that the word of God as the scripture is being called back to over and over again. In fact, when he warned us of an evil heart of unbelief, he referred to Psalm 95, right? Verse 7, as if they shall enter into my rest. He's using the word of God to penetrate into our hearts. And so it's only, it only makes sense that Paul is preaching of the Bible as the written word when he speaks of it as being able to expose the inmost parts of our soul. And the other reason, and this is not a smoking gun of all, uh, at all, but what is interesting here is that if I don't believe that this is the Son because it uses several self-evident qualities of the Son of God in this text that aren't necessarily obvious about the written Bible, right? It's, uh, the, the word of God here is called living and powerful, right? Those are things that we know of the Son of God. It doesn't need to be re-emphasized, uh, though the scripture, of course, reiterates things all the time. But I think what might strike us as uh, new, perhaps, is to see that the scriptures are living and powerful and active, Things that we don't always think about the Holy Word. And so I think that's helpful as well because this teaches us, this text teaches us something of the doctrine of the Word of God too. But to see the perspective of the other side is actually helpful. That uh, those who see this is the Son of God, the reason they do this is because in verse 13, you may have noticed this, there is an abrupt transition from speaking of the Scripture to suddenly now speaking of a person. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Right? See, there's a, uh, without naming who this is, it's almost like there is a continuation of the word of God here. And so then when we see the, the, uh, the word of God personified, then our minds immediately go to Jesus Christ. But I think this is actually where the two views actually converge really well, because there is an inseverable connection between the Holy Bible and Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. And so this transition from Scripture to Son is seamless. At the end of the day, then, there is a distinction between these two views that is important, but there is not much. The conclusion is the same. Jesus, through his Word, exposes our inmost being. So that interpretive question out of the way, and it might be worthy of your study if you'd like to study it some more. Let's now consider the qualities, then, of the Word of God that are laid out here, the qualities of the Word. And they all have something to say of the penetrating nature of the Holy Scripture. And this is where we really need to recapture in our day and age the power of the Word of God. If there is one thing that is lacking in churches today, it is a sense that the Word of God is powerful, it is sufficient, and it is able to do powerful things. And the weakness of the church is to go away from the teaching of this text, that the word has great power. You know, the word of God, the scriptures, are not just bare information, in other words. But, but beloved, they are active by the Holy Spirit. And there are three qualities that we find taught here. They are quick, 
They are powerful and they are sharp. First, quick. And in the older language, boys and girls, that means living. The scriptures are alive. When the, script, when the Holy Spirit blesses the text of the Bible, it is truly alive. It is operative. It is a living word. Why is that? Because it is the word of the living God, as we've already heard in Hebrews 3.12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And if God is alive, friends, he speaks, and he speaks through this word, because this word is God-breathed. You know, the the problem is sometimes, you know, and I've heard this, uh, we were in a mildly charismatic church when we were first converted, um, you know, the, the, the refrain is always like, if God is alive, he speaks, right? And they say then you have to be open to God speaking to you. Just listen for that still, quiet voice, right? thing is, God thunders. He thunders in the word of God. And yes, God does speak, but he speaks through the Holy Scripture. This word is alive, is what this text says, because it is God-breathed. What does the scripture say? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16. And as it is alive, we praise God for this, right? As it is alive, it can also give life. It gives life to sinners dead in their sins and trespasses. 1 Peter 1.23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the what? Word of God, which, what, liveth and abideth forever. Do you see these qualities of the word of God are everywhere? The same qualities in Hebrews 4 are taught by Peter. The living word can give life to sinners. And so what we have to understand, and and we have to understand that reading the Bible and preaching the Bible is all part of our worship, friends, because God is truly communicating with us. He is communicating with us right now and he is judging us and he is speaking words to us that intend to wound us and draw us to Jesus Christ. This is a time not of hearing a man drone on and on and on and read some words out of an old book, but this is a a time in which God communicates by his Holy Spirit to us and he intends for us to listen. We have to receive it that way. And as you are now hearing the living and active words of God that gives us spiritual life, we we rejoice whenever we come under the word of God, knowing it can bring life to us if we would come by faith. And on the flip side, friends, this is why when the word of God is displaced, whether in whole or in part, spiritual death descends on a congregation and spiritual life is gone away. If we will not keep the word of God sacred and central to the ministry of this church, if we displace it or we dispute against it, what, happens to the, what happened to the PCUSA will be the fate of the RPCNA. Ichabod, the glory is gone if we ignore the living word. And no one is born again in a place that does not esteem the living word of God. That's why the word of God has a central place in this congregation's ministry. The word preached, the word sung, even the word prayed so often. The word made visible in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. The word is central in those too. It must always be about the life-giving word, properly divided, properly handled. Then we are blessed with life and life everlasting. And the word does not just produce spiritual birth. 
It also adds life, and this is a part that we who already believe must, must embrace. It adds life to those mortified parts of our soul that are dead and lifeless. Even as believers, we are mixed with life and death. There is an old man, there's an old nature rather, and there is a, a new creation. And the old is passing away as our inner man is being renewed. But it is the word that does that work of renewal, friends. Our souls are a mixture of life and death. We are not yet glorified. And we think then on the comfort that we find in Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. It is the word that gives us life. Is there some deadness in your soul, believer, that needs to be rejuvenated with life? In your affliction, then, take up the word of God. Take it in. Take it in by faith and point your soul towards it. Your soul will find rejuvenation, more life and more vitality will be given to it. But only, as we heard earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 2, only if we mix it with faith and we receive it with faith, then only it will give life to us. And we must by faith believe that this is a living and active word from God. So the word is quick, it is living. Second, it is powerful. And in the Greek, the word powerful has the sense of being effective and active. It is able to do exactly what God intends it to do. No wonder David said that the word was his comfort in his affliction. It is able to do what God says it does. Uh, what a sovereign God purposes to do with the word. He does with it in us. He does uh, the, word, uh, the works of the word in us. You know, to be under the ministry of the word and receive it by faith, to receive it by faith is to have its effect on us. What do we remember? Our former pastor would always seek this blessing of the Lord in Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Right? You know, this is... One of the things that we who are ministers depend mightily on, that God really truly does work through the word of God, that it is not my persuasion, it is not my trying to manipulate your heart, but that if the word is rightly divided and it is blessed by the spirit and received by faith, it will have the effect God wants to have it. And one of the most wonderful things about being your pastor, even less than two years now, is that I have seen this life-giving and powerful word change so many of us. I didn't have as good of a view of it when I was sitting in the chairs there. But as your pastor, I have seen life where there was once deadness, zeal where there was once nominalism, love where there was once apathy. And it is not the work of the men who come here to preach. It is, as Luther said of the Reformation, the word did it all. It was not the work of men, and neither is the work done in this congregation or any other. It is the word. The word does it all because it is powerful, it is effective, and it is alive. And to embrace that truth by faith will be to see the power of God manifest. What a thing, you know, you think of how richly the Lord blessed the Reformation. Why? It was a return to Scripture that was neglected for so long. There was no power in the church, in dead, made-up sacraments, and all kinds of man-made doctrines, the traditions and commandments of men. But when the church returned to the Word, there was power. Souls went from death to life. 
and the world was transformed. Boys and girls, for your encouragement, and maybe you don't realize this being growing up in the church, we are not reading an old, moldy, old text like so many other religions do, but something that is alive and powerfully effective. If you want God to work in you, boys and girls, even at this age, embrace the word of God by faith. Receive it by faith and and ask God to work by it in you. Be immersed in it daily. Let the words of life dwell richly in your heart. Receive biblical preaching and teaching constantly. Do not miss an opportunity to be under it, beloved. And you will find, if you embrace the word that way, great communion with the living God. And you will find spiritual life and vitality. But if you think every day as you rush out to get out into the world that the place the word of God has is secondary... And it's like, well, I missed my readings today. Oh, I, or even if I read, I'll give it 15 minutes, but I, I'll just read it, just read it quickly. And I won't let it have its work in me. I won't embrace the work. I will not say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. If I won't do that, the word will have no effect in you, and you will find spiritual deadness in your soul. But also, a quality here is that it is sharper than a two-edged sword that penetrates. It penetrates into our inmost being. It cuts into us. That's the working of the word that the Lord intends for our focus to be on here. It pierces and divides asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart. And the idea is rhetorical, really. This is not a scientific text to tell you about certain aspects of the soul and certain aspects of your body. I'll get to that in just a bit because heretics have taken this text in wrong directions. But really, the idea is rhetorical. The inmost parts of man are exposed and separated so that we may see what God sees. The word of God will expose us, friends. Even those parts of our heart that we believe are hidden. The word, and I trust if you're a believer, you have seen this. It shows us our sinful thoughts and our evil intentions. Now, as I alluded to, I wish I did not have to do this, but I have to make a slight digression here and speak of a theological aberration called trichotomy, which is that teaching that man is composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, whereas the biblical teaching is dichotomy. Man is composed of only two parts, body and soul. And so our verse becomes a proof text for those who hold to trichotomy because it's, they say it speaks of the dividing of soul and spirit. But before we handle that, let me remind you that the Bible elsewhere says that we are just body and soul. Jesus in Matthew 10, 28 says, Fear him that is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying the whole man is soul and body. And so the whole man who doesn't flee to Christ will find all of himself in hell. Not like his spirit is hanging out somewhere else. The whole man, body and soul, is cast into hell unless A man flees to Jesus to be forgiven. And elsewhere, uh, in the Bible, uh, in teaching dichotomy, the spirit is interchangeably used with the soul of man to show that there are only two parts to man. Consider 1 Corinthians 7.34. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. You see that? The whole of the woman is body and spirit doesn't put soul in there because soul and uh, and spirit are interchangeable in the Bible. They both speak of the soul of man. 
And think of how Jesus speaks in the great commandment about dividing the soul of man. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. He does not mean to separate the mind and heart out of the soul. They're all faculties of a man's soul. And so it's the same thing with our text. We have multiple views here into the very same thing. For instance, we have dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Those are all part of the soul. The thoughts and intentions of the heart are all portions of the soul. And the reason that you find trichotomy here is because throughout history, the champions of trichotomy have been heretics. And today you find it among the charismatics. And it's interesting when I was looking at why charismatics do this. It's because they want to create mischief, friends, by telling you you have to put to death your soul because it is the seat of the intellect. How, (laughs) I just didn't think, how uh, necessary this is for their doctrine to put to death the intellect. They say you must let go of your intellect and live in your spirit. Part of their desire is to make you stop using your mind to be susceptible to their nonsense. But instead, God says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, showing soul and spirit are interchangeable, Ephesians 4.24. And historically, before the Charismatics, it was the Gnostics that were trichotomists. And that is what caused the church to condemn this view. I thought about this, showing that there is no heresy. Charismatics are unwilling to resuscitate to further their doctrine. Well, with that important divergence, establishing we are a dichotomy and not trichotomy, let's return to the thrust of the text, which is that the word of God can penetrate our inmost being and expose what is inside. Whatever barriers we have put up against God by the power of the living and active word, it can cut through all the barriers of unregenerated flesh that would keep a sinner from being convicted of his sinfulness. It cuts into the very secrets of the soul that we suppress in unrighteousness. This is why, friends, when we go to the unconverted, we must preach the word of God because it alone can penetrate into those recesses of their hearts and reveal what is inside. You think of David after his murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba. Had the man not erected a great hardness in his heart? But Nathan the prophet brings the word of the Lord to bear on him. 2 Samuel 12, 11, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. What did David see? He was naked and exposed before the words of God. His evil, he saw, was as plain to the Lord as though he had committed adultery and murder out in the open in front of everyone. And David would say with conviction as the word cut into his heart, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the penetrating power of the word, friends, that can convict a sinner of their sin even as they are being more and more confirmed in it. And it is that power then that causes a heart cut by it to, be, uh, to flee, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because as David, as David was cut to the heart, then we remember the 51st Psalm was the product of it. As he was cut to the heart and he sought the mercies of God. And so, 
and I don't actually know the relationship of when these, this psalm was, was uh, uh, off the top of my head, but I thought of it. But you think about it, Psalm 19, verse 12. What did David plead? Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. How are you going to find your secret faults, friends? You must open your heart up to the word of God. It is the word that is that powerful sword that the Lord uses to show our secret faults. How many times, friends, and I pray it is the same for you, I have opened up this word and I have seen the secret faults of my heart, things I had not seen before, and has caused me to repent time and time again of my sins and flee to Christ. And I know it's the same for everyone who has been born again. Because the day that the word first gave you life, life came to you by exposing your sinfulness. That's how anyone is saved, by seeing their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. And you know, a lot of people, even Christian people, they they hate this particular operation of the Word of God, and they refuse to come under it. They feel the Word cut into them, and they just don't want it. They don't want the pain that comes from it. They slam their Bibles sometimes in anger. You've seen even famous men in history have done that. Or they'll tell the preacher, just stop it. Stop preaching conviction of sin. Just teach me some things about the Bible. But the word here is a two-edged sword that proceeds from Christ's mouth in the Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And this is the effect the Lord wants from his word. And I will just say, to refuse to come under the conviction of the word of God is as refusing to go under the surgeon's scalpel when you have a cancer. And all that's going to happen is if you will not receive the word of God and the conviction of the word, you will have spiritual cancer grow and grow, overtaking you, even killing you, if you refuse to submit to the power of the word of God. You know, a lot of Christians, and I was thinking about this, they love, and I've noticed there's a particular kind of Christian that likes this. They love the idea of the sword of the word being the one offensive weapon in Ephesians chapter 6. But how few of them realize that that sword is first meant to be pointed at ourselves. Otherwise, we have no use in spiritual battle. The word has to convict us first. And that's why so many who think they're taking up the word and going and contending with all kinds of people, they find no effect from the word because they have not turned the word on their own heart first. And what we have to then understand, and this is a snare we can fall into, is that... uh, Receiving the word of God is not merely an intellectual exercise. I say not merely. It is an intellectual exercise, but not merely. You know, the preaching of the word, yes, it is meant to renew your minds to better know God and to better know your duty to God. But you cannot end there, friends. The preaching, especially of the word, I'm going to focus on that because I'm preaching right now. But the preaching of the word especially is meant to affect your very soul, to expose you before God. And cause you to repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus for mercy and that you would purpose yourself to new obedience by God's help. It has a moral purpose and not just an intellectual one. And that's a trap many, especially Reformed churches, fall into in their preaching, which is to show you, and this is a very good thing, to show you the doctrines of the word, but never to bring the force of the word of God to bear in your heart and soul. But I think of the intended effect, and this is how our forefathers have always seen the effect of the preaching of the word. It is found in 1 Corinthians 14.25. And think of our text in relation to it. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. 
And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report God is in you of a truth. In this congregation, we often pray for this effect of the word, that the secrets in men's hearts would be revealed so that the secrets of their hearts would be revealed today and not in the judgment that they would then hear in this place, in this time, they would, as the text says in 1 Corinthians 14, that as their secrets are made open, they would fall on his face, on their face to worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. The only way that we even can put these texts together is to see, yes, the word of God is alive. And that's why he reports, the unbeliever reports, God is here. Because the word is alive and powerful and effective and has cut into my soul. You know, we, we want this because we want people to worship God when their, their sins are, are exposed, that they would flee to Christ. And so I'll just encourage all of you, when you study the word of God, do not just study it to piece together doctrines, which is, of course, necessary. Don't misunderstand me. I hope you know me enough by now to know that's not what I mean, to turn away from the intellectual exercise. But it's not enough. You must go further. Let the Lord judge you by the word, bring you under conviction of sin, and let the word then take you to Jesus Christ to give glory to God and to worship God when you are convicted. And if your Bible reading does not produce this, meditate on the word in such ways. Think of Psalm 26, verse 2. Maybe when you come to the word, not only say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Maybe you say with Psalm 26, 2, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. When you go to the word of God daily, ask the Lord to pierce your heart. It's a bittersweet thing, friend, to feel that conviction. It's bitter because of the bitterness of sin, but it is also sweet because it drives you to Jesus Christ for mercy. All believers have felt this bittersweet nature of the word, most especially on the day we first believed, where we mourned the evil of our sin as we were cut to the heart, but also when we saw a glorious Savior that makes his love and mercy sweet to us. I think of the most famous piercing, maybe one of the most, uh, let me just caveat this, one of the most famous piercings of the word in the New Testament. You remember Peter's sermon in the book of Acts. He preached to the crowd in Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the Holy Spirit brings to bear this conviction of their sin that their sin had crucified Jesus Christ. And we hear what next? Now, when they heard this, they were pricked or cut in their heart. That's the work of the sword of the Lord. The word preached, cut into their sinful heart. And what was their response to the apostles? Men and brethren, what shall we do? The secrets of their heart were exposed, something that they even refused to see themselves. But the word cuts their heart and all the barriers of unbelief were cut away. And the word cut them to the quick as it did David. And it demanded a response. They asked, what shall we do under conviction? And what was the answer? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that ye, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the way the word is meant to work, friends. And that is what especially the pulpit ministry in a church is meant to affect. 
The minister is meant to wield the word as a sword to reveal the thoughts and intents of our hearts. I have a citation much neglected these days from the original Westminster Directory of Public Worship, 1645, on how the word is to be preached. This is a portion of it. Let me read it to you. He, that is the minister, is not to rest in general doctrine, although never so much cleared and confirmed, but to bring it home to special use by application to his hearers, which, albeit it prove a work of great difficulty to himself, requiring much prudence, zeal, and meditation, and to the natural and corrupt man will be very unpleasant. Yet he is to endeavor to perform it in such a manner that his auditors may feel the word of God to be quick and powerful and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that if any unbeliever or ignorant person be present, he may have the secrets of his heart made manifest and give glory to God. You see how Hebrews 4 and 1 Corinthians 14 are tied together in the directory. But this is how the word of God is meant to be wielded. And the reason for the weakness in so much ministry today, even in the pulpits often in the RPCNA, is the avoidance of the unpleasantness that comes with the piercing use of the word of God. But did you understand from the Bible that it is this very use that leads men to flee to Jesus and to worship and glorify God? That's what we must remember. Uh, Under the words conviction... We must flee to Jesus as Peter pointed those who are convicted in Acts. When our heart is pricked, don't let your heart just bleed out spiritually. You repent of your sin. You turn to Jesus for mercy. You admit to God that you are in the wrong in a confession of your sin. You plead then the mercies of Jesus in the covenant of grace. And you resolve by God's help to walk in newness of life. And then you will be healed. The word is as that surgeon's scalpel. It has cut out the cancer in your heart and your soul is revived and you find the vivification, that bringing uh, to your soul life, the opposite of mortification is taking place. And so believers, the word is not just for your conversion, but your sanctification. You must mix the word with faith in Jesus, the uh, the living word. It cuts away. What did uh, uh, Romans 8.13 say about mortification? If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The Word of God is like a scalpel in the hands of the Holy Spirit to kill what is dead. Or to use another metaphor, and I'm not going to mix them right now, but I'll bring it to your fore. Uh, another metaphor in the Bible, the Word is like a plow. That plows our fallow ground so that the good seeds of righteousness can be implanted in our soul. Again, we need this operation of the word to cut that which is dead. Like cutting out uh, those uh, weeds that overgrow the soul uh, and the heart. Friends, as I wrap up this first heading, just what you must do, if nothing else, as you take away this text, is you need to submit yourself to the word of God constantly. And ask for it to expose you. Ask the Lord, show me my inmost thoughts that dishonor God. Show me my lusts. Show me my wicked intents. You know God sees them all anyway. And the word, what it does is it demonstrates that God sees all. Repent of your sins, beloved, under the power of the word. And know that when you feel the effect of the word on your soul, that if you would turn to Jesus, you would see the reason he has cut you is not to kill you, but to heal you. And you would turn to him for mercy. 
And so with that, let's consider our second heading, judged by the word. Now, the reason we must open ourselves to the sword of the Lord in our heart is in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nathan proved this to David, didn't he? There is no place you can hide from Christ. Not your rooftop, not in your secret most innermost chambers. All our sins, all our evils are open and exposed before the Lord. If you would think on how total and complete a vision he has of us, friends, it should frighten us. Isn't this why Jesus said, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He knows what you do in your heart. He knows exactly. He sees whatever you are doing in your heart, not just in your hands. All things are naked and exposed. That's why it says the word, uh, it, it shows us the thoughts and intentions of our heart. You must see what you are in his eyes today, friends. To see the gravity of our sin because the text says this. He is the one with whom we have to do. The sense is we all will have to give an account to Jesus Christ. And it is this segue, as I mentioned earlier, from the written word to Jesus, the living word, is so appropriate then. For he is the word incarnate. And he will judge all of our secrets, beloved. Romans 2.16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. My friends, no secret of yours or mine are hidden from the eyes of Jesus Christ. Not a thing is hidden from him. Whether you commit them in the dark or you commit them in your heart, you are naked and exposed before God Almighty. That is why we must judge ourselves against the life-giving, sharp and powerful word of God today, friends, before the day comes when we will have to give that account to God. How many have deluded themselves? I was talking to a woman during the lunch hour who is trying to minister to a family member, and this family member is saying over and over again to her, I am a good person. So I know I am going to heaven. Why does she say this? This family member say this. It is because she has refused to hear what the word of God says to her. The Lord, beloved, is going to judge us all against the word of God itself. And so many will weep and wail forever. As they recognize on that day, as God opens the secrets of their heart, they will understand what we who have been converted understand. There is none good, no, not one. Not a single one of us is good. All people are great sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And what a great shock that will be one day when the secrets of the heart are laid bare and the lust and the murder in the heart, the adultery, the lies, the, the lack of honor and glory given to God. All of that is poured out. It will seem like it is something that cannot even be contained with all the books of the world. What is in your heart against God? And how many will be shocked on that day to see how much evil there is? Because they refused in this life to hear what the Bible says. There is none good, no, not one. And they refused even the Bible says that their conscience testifies against them. And so they are even suppressing that in unrighteousness. 
Friends, we must, all of us, even if we are believers, must bring the word of God to bear and judge our hearts because the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9-10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We memorize that. What's the next part? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You cannot know. You cannot know your own heart apart from the word of God, friends. Why? Because your heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart is prone to fall for the deceitfulness of sin, as in Hebrews 3.13. The one and sure guide you have is not unsanctified feelings or thoughts, but the very word of God itself. For that is how the Lord searches your heart. Have you ever fallen? under the conviction of the word of God in your life, friend? If not, if not, it is hard for me to understand how you are born again and how you are a possessor of eternal life. And if that conviction, that conviction is not enough, right? To, to, so many people are temporarily under the, the external effects of the word. If that conviction has never caused you to repent of the sin that you are convicted of, if it never caused you to flee to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness, you are certainly not saved. And so I pray that if you are a person like this, this word convicts you of that, that you are naked before God with all your sins and faults laid out before him. All the ways you have despised God and hated your neighbor, your pride, your love of self, your distaste of the things of God and an eternity before you that you just don't care about. You are a naked friend as Adam and Eve were naked before God. And all the secrets of your heart are here in the word. But we praise God because this word in the pages of this scripture is also the life-giving Savior who forgives. If your heart is pricked by all this, that pricking of your heart is meant for you to go to him for mercy. That's why, even though I'm not going to preach on it, I wanted to read from verses 14 to 16, because you see, as our thoughts and intents are discerned, and we stand naked before God, what a balm it is then that these verses follow, seeing then that we have a a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are cut by the word, you go to your sympathetic high priest for forgiveness. Uh, and you think of this, right? We, we, we hate how we feel under the cutting of the sword of the Lord, the word of God. But you think that this Jesus, to be our high priest, was cut by the sword of God's wrath, that he might be our high priest. He was cut down for our sinful thoughts and intentions. On the cross, you remember what was prophesied of him, that the Father took up a sword against Jesus for the sake of the elect, the sword of his wrath, Zechariah 13.7. One of the most solemn texts in the Bible. God the Father says, Awake, O sword! Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. He awakes the sword of his wrath to cut down Jesus in the place of all who believe on him. That the sword we deserve, that we who believe deserve, fell on Jesus and cut him down. And Jesus did this willingly to lay down his life for us. And he is touched 
with feeling for us. You heard that last week with the widow in Luke 7. And so what is he saying? When you come under the conviction of the word, the very word that cuts the sinner's heart, not only cuts our hearts, but it says, sinner, boldly go to Jesus for mercy and help in being forgiven and sanctified. And this is the bittersweet work of the word of God. And beloved, what we love about the gospel is that it gives sinners like us the very perfections of Christ. And I will never tire of preaching of that great exchange, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so you say, yes, I am naked and exposed before God. But if I believe in the gospel, when I give my account to God on the last great day, I will not even have to open my mouth. Jesus will present me to God the Father and say, this one is mine. And his account, it is my own. And Father, you know my perfection, it is spotless, and I give it to him or to her. That is what is so beautiful about the gospel, robed in the righteousness of Christ, that God now sees us who believe through Christ. And so may that same gospel hope be yours today if you are under the conviction of sin. Jesus said this as we consider the word of God, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. But what were the next sorrowful words? And ye will not come to me, that ye might have eternal life. Search the scriptures, friends. Be convicted of your sin. But not just be convicted of your sin. Go to the one the scriptures testify of. And all we can say to these things is, what a complete Savior we have been given by God to sinners like us. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us please rise for prayer as we go to Jesus now. Oh, our Father and our God, how we thank you for the word of God. We don't bless you enough, Father, for the very words of life. We don't thank you for the life-giving word. We don't sit here disputing the opinions of rabbis. We don't sit here looking at how pieces of the word come together. But instead, we come under the very life-giving word, a word that is alive, alive, that searches the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. And as we are exposed, Father, help us to repent of our sin and turn to the life-giving Savior. We thank you and bless you for Jesus Christ, that you have given us a word that not only convicts, but also heals us if we would flee to Jesus Christ. Help us all turn to Jesus for grace and mercy in our time of need, but also help us walk closely with you by ever submitting ourselves to the word of God that we would be conformed to his life and his example and that we would walk well with him. We ask this for his sake. Amen.